the Heavy History British General Election Series podcast with Dr. Luke Blacksell and Mr. Tame Sala. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Victoria College Oxbridge SCR. The cook is in the kitchen, the butler has laid the table, the sweep has swept the chimney, the bedder has made the bed, and the boot boy has cleaned the boots. The Queen is well, and Mr. Sala has joined me from Queen's College, University of Cambridge, to discuss the next general election in the British Heavy History election series, the general election of 1885, one of my favourite elections. If you had gone on a time machine to 1885 and asked a contemporary about the election, he would have told you that it looked as though Britain was on the threshold of something very new. A new election with new content, a new voting system and a striking result. That's right. So what we've got is... uh, the, the foundations of so much of what seems to us essential to the running of British elections, the legislation that restricts corruption, the uh, uh, a franchise that um, people at the time at least deemed generally to be democratic, no class seemed to be, um, in contemporaries' eyes, contemporaries' eyes, systematically excluded from the franchise, and you have the introduction of what to us seems uh, a, a, a quite natural part of any election, which is single member as opposed to mul- as opposed to multi member constituencies, and step forward two new men on the scene. Previous episodes have been dominated by Gladstone and Disraeli. Disraeli is now dead, and Gladstone, at the age of seventy five, still very much there, but it's questionable how long he will continue. And the first of those new men is Joseph Chamberlain, who we can see here, the famous Birmingham radical had been mayor of Birmingham, um, a Unitarian on the radical edge of nonconformity, a self-made man in manufacturing, stepping forwards to really embody what looked to be the new Liberal Party of tomorrow. And on the other side, we had someone who was certainly of a very different cast of mind, not only from Chamberlain, but from uh, his predecessor as leader of the Conservative Party. So far in this series, we've only had to do with the Disra- with Disraeli's brand of conservatism. Uh, Salisbury, I think any, I think anyone would agree, was uh, of a considerably different, considerably different hue of conservatism. Uh, unlike Disraeli, of a impeccably Patricia background. Unlike Disraeli, uh, someone who is quite. Uh, forthrightly reactionary, dare I say, on the great questions of the day, um, and someone who, just as uh, Chamberlain seemed to be stepping forward uh, to assume the new progressive radical mantle of challenging the tyranny of private property, so we have on the other side of the of the other side of the Commons, Lord Say Lord Salisbury, someone who represented the forces that wanted to protect property. Mm. And in this um, heavy history election series, episodes in 1885, we're going to go through two major talking points. The first is going to be about the 1883 to 1885 reforms that Mr. Sala described so clearly. And the second, we're going to talk about the new content, the unauthorised programme that Joseph Chamberlain floats before the British people. So, our first talking point is the 1883 to 1885 reforms, namely the Corrupt and Illegal Practices Act of 1883, the Third Reform Act of 1884, and the Redistribution of Seats Act in 1885. Now, taken together, these three reforms were thought to be strikingly democratic by contemporaries. They were referred to by Sir Henry Maine as unmoderated democracy, and would create, so Lord Acton thought, a parliament that would be the first of our democratic constitution. We're first going to talk about the Corrupt and Illegal Practices Act of 1883. And I would ask you, Mr. Sala, how big a problem was corruption still in the 1880s in Britain? Well, we have, I think, still in our collective repository of cultural memories, um, some inkling of what elections used to be like in days of yore. We have 
Charles Dickens's depiction in the Pickwick Papers of the rotten bar of Eatonswill and the brazen chicanery and corruption that uh, went on there. In a slightly earlier age, we have the lurid portraits of Hogarth, um, of the progress of an election, of the bribery, of the industrial-scale bribery of voters, of the chairing of candidates marred by drunkenness and violence. And more recently, um, in our cultural canon, we have, of course, Blackadder, the, Blackadder, the third series, um, and the Rottenborough of Dunning on the Wall. Uh, and the rampant corruption that was essential to the conduct of politics there. Now, there's a sense in which we may be naturally inclined to think that given the uh, electoral reforms that had already happened by the 1880s, so we've talked about the first two reform acts in previous episodes, we've talked about the introduction of the secret ballot in 1872, the, the, the impetus and the, and the conditions for that kind of industrial-scale corruption um, would have, uh, to some extent or other, withered away. However, that was not the perspective that any politician or voter in the early 1880s would have had. The previous election of 1880 was, of course, a very expensive election where bribery was very much the order of the day. You still had... Uh, 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 candidates and uh, their agents bribing voters. You still had them uh, plying them with alcohol to secure a favourable outcome. You still had rowdyism. You had uh, acts of orchestrated or mob violence. Uh, you had, particularly in Ireland, the practice of cooping up electors um, and uh, detaining them in order to uh, uh, make sure they voted in the in the desired way. Um, so by 1883, by no means was any of this uh, a thing of the past. Yeah, so this is really where the Corrupt and Legal Practice Act appeared. Um, I mean, uh, earlier, um, uh, when we were um, uh, taking a cup of tea um, in the, um, uh, the lower senior combination room in Victoria College, Oxbridge, um, uh, Mr. Saleh mentioned to me that he thought that the Gladstonian moral mm. impetus um, to clean up politics was also an important sort of founding driver behind the 1883 Corrupt Practice Act, as well as the persistence of many of these um, uh, factors that, that Mr. Sala described there uh, so eloquently, that it is clearly quite incompatible with a sort of an expanded franchise, with an elevation of the moral condition of the people, that voters are being shipped en masse, drunken to the poll, that are being you know, palmed half crowns to vote one way or the other, that even if these things are diminishing factors in politics, that there is maybe a sort of a moral imperative to really clean them up. Now, 1880 as an election in terms of its expenditure, partly it's because of the low number of uncontested returns that it's so expensive, but partly it is also a belief uh, that uh, corrupt and illegal practice still seems to be continuing even after secret voting, which obviously makes it much more difficult for someone who is bribing a voter to know that they've actually honoured their bargain at the polls. So what does the Corrupt and Legal Practices Act do? Well, it's piloted by um, uh, Henry, Henry James, um, and it does two really major things. The first is to put very harsh official spending limits on what candidates running for an election can actually spend on their campaign. And the second thing it does is it expands the principle of culpability um, to a much larger network of agents who are in the pay of candidates, which is to say that no longer does the actual buck stop with the candidate in being them being directly implicated for corrupt practice or, you know, their principal agents being directly implicated, that even people who are joined very, very loosely to the Conservative or the Liberal campaigns, if they are found to have bribed a voter, that can invalidate the entire election on the presentation of a petition. And what that means is that the election in that constituency is declared void, a new by-election has to be fought, and also that the candidate who is unseated cannot stand for that constituency for another seven years. And so the overall effect of this on electioneering by local parties is really actually almost one of shock initially. It is to say, how on earth can we, especially given that the franchise is going to probably expand quite soon as well, how can we actually fight proper election campaigns when we are allowed to spend such little money 
and where we can't really even employ you know, party workers for the risk that one of them, you know, will just slide a half crown into the hand of a voter in the dog and duck and will be unseated afterwards. So what that means is, or effectively, is that parties start employing networks of volunteers. That it's no coincidence that the Conservative Primrose League um, is founded in advance of the 1885 election to give the Conservatives a new array of voluntary canvassers, many of them women. Um, to do much of the door stopping, much of the delivery of leaflets, much of the work of electioneering, you know, that becomes, that is part and parcel of elections then um, and now as well. And so that um, is the sort of major shift of the Corrupt and Illegal Practices Act. And, you know, there is, of course, a debate on how far it worked, but it does seem as though from 1885 onwards that there's a sharp reduction in the number of post-election petition filed. And with the odd exception, like, for example, Great Yarmouth in 1906, where there was probably still, you know, the vestiges of an old kind of corrupt culture, that corrupt practices in British elections tend to be eliminated. That's not so much the case with electoral violence. Um, 1885 actually sees quite a lot of electoral violence and there's obviously an argument about how far that was just simply cultural and, um, you know, agricultural labourers getting drunk, for example, and actually, or whether it was actually sort of deliberately paid for by shadowy forces. But from um, the late 1880s, that also starting um, to disappear um, as well. Um, but... Now, no, I just wanted to say that, that in addition to all that, one sort of subsidiary or perhaps indirect consequence of the, the measures contained in the Corrupt and Legal Practices Act is precisely because, A, of the spending limits, and B, because of the, the firmness of the culpability attached now to the candidate uh, and or his agent. Uh, both those measures combine to, you know, to, to contribute to the already developing um, a structural tendency in British politics towards uh, uh, the regimented ideological rigidity of the party machine. So because you can't pay people to work for you, they have to be volunteers, they have to be driven by some level of political conviction to support your candidacy. That implies, you know, a party machine, you know, dominated by some kind of ideological interest. And the fact that um, the, 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 the candidate and the agent are criminally responsible for what each of those volunteers may do in the course of an election campaign means that, um, there's, a, you know, that the, that the candidate has every interest in regulating and regimenting much more closely than before the conduct and the practices of those volunteers. So you're getting, you know, the, all the incentives, all the incentives are pointing towards having a much more, shall we say, finely, finely tuned, uh, uh, closely scrutinized party electioneering machine. Yes, and one of the effects of that was also that parties had to become increasingly careful of what help they actually brought in. So at election campaigns, it was very common for independent associations, for example, like mm. licensed victuellers or anti-vivisectionists or whoever, uh, to also play parts in election campaigns. But if they got too close to the actual party purse, shall we say, mm. again, there was the danger of a potential filing for corrupt practice. Um, additionally, the actual cost implications as well, that um, because uh, printing leaflets locally is so much more expensive and because the campaign limits are so tight, it becomes a lot more economical uh, to get national imported literature that's mm. centrally, centrally produced, centrally printed. Mm. And that also obviously has implications for the role of locality in politics. If you're um, getting, you know, uh, leaflets that have come out of the National Liberal Publication Department or Conservative Central Office uh, being given, you know, out by volunteers. Yeah. That's a little bit different um, uh, from, you know, the very highly sort of localised materials involving local cartoonists, for example, you know, local poets, local printers, etc., that you might have had when there weren't these kind of limits. And so this although it's a quite minor legal change seemingly, does have some quite strong implications in what elections feel like. And moving on then to the real substantial, um, you know, the main filling of this kind of sort of sandwich, I suppose, is the actual Third Reform Act itself. Now, this is probably the least celebrated of the four major reform acts, I suppose, um, because it didn't really create you know, much in the, way, in the way of controversy when it was actually going through Parliament, unlike 1832, unlike 87, and to some extent, unlike 1918. But the 1884 Reform Act equalises the borough and county franchises. In 1867, very famously, there was a much lower 
franchise brought in in those boroughs, household franchise, whereas the old 1832 system was still in operation in the counties. But it seems as though this puts the franchise on what we might call a much more sort of logical and final basis than was the case in 1867. That's quite right. Uh, Not only because of the equalisation between the counties and the boroughs, but also because of the equalisation between all the four nations of the United Kingdom. Mm. In the previous two Reform Acts of 1832 and 1867, um, the the actual passage of the of those bills through Parliament, including all the you know moments of uh, high rhetoric and you know great parliamentary drama that are you know part of the narratives of those. Of, of those uh, of those political events, um, uh, th- those sort of memorable bits are always to do with the first version of each of those bills, which specifically attain- uh, pertained to England and Wales. And once uh, those bills had passed, and once the the basic principles of reform had been hashed out by the acquisition of um, some kind of parliamentary majority, then straight afterwards. Um, for each of the first two reform acts, there would be separate bills for Scotland and Ireland seeking to, uh, in, you know, to sort of broadly uh, recreate in the slightly different legal context of Scotland and Ireland, you know, those, those principles established for England and Wales. That's not the case though in 1884. In 1884, you have a single drafted bill for the entire United Kingdom. Um, this is partly because in the early 1880s, um, you know, the Irish nationalists as a bloc in Parliament were more influential. And Gladstone and piloting this bill through was, was, you know, was interested in, in making sure that the Irish interests were catered to, to secure support. You know, wanted to make that clear from the, uh, for, for him and his allies from the beginning. Um, and so, uh, Ireland kept its hundred odd seats, uh, 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 in the new House of Commons, even though on a, strictly arithmetic basis it perhaps didn't quite deserve that um but but we so we have across uh the nations of the uk and across the uh um uh the countryside and the cities this equalized franchise and in the view of um contemporaries that that equalization also entailed effectively an equalization between classes um in the years following 1885 it did not yet it did not really seem clear to anyone that any social class was being systematically shut out of the franchise. The, the household franchise, as it was called, uh, which now predominated uniformly across the nation, uh, uh, does not meet our, criteria, our kind of key criteria of what a democratic franchise looks like. Quite apart from the exclusion of women, it still excluded about 40% of men. Um, and although historians later on, you know, in the second half of the 20th century would have arguments about who exactly was excluded, um, and the class basis of that exclusion, it's still the case that contemporaries at the time, and I would think probably the majority of historians today would agree that no social class was being singled out by the terms of the act. To be a householder, to be the, to be the head of a household was obviously a very gendered term, but it was not necessarily a very class term. So you could have working class heads of households, you can have middle class heads of households. Um, the household doesn't have to be grand, it could be a little cottage in the countryside, it could be a hovel, it could be uh, a, a flat in a city, but so long as a property was being let out whole to a tenant, no matter how low the rent, that was still a household. And the, the man who was responsible for paying that rent or that mortgage or who owned it outright was um, the man entitled to vote. Um, people, of course, were excluded from that. If you moved around from place to place as an itinerant worker, that meant you fell foul of the registration criteria. If you um, were old and infirm and lived with your son or you were, or, or you were young and you still lived with your parents, you were not entitled to vote. But nonetheless, we, we have the makings of a system that doesn't rely on what to us seems extremely arbitrary cut-off points of, you know, you're entitled to vote if your property is worth yeah. so much, you know, so much rent value a year or rateable value or, or whatever. Yeah, I mean, even the, even the founders of 1832 were aware they're introducing, for example, a £10 borough franchise, that there might have to be some alterations to that kind of monetary amount. That This principle of 
household suffrage is, if anything, I suppose, the final evolution of the decision to base the franchise on property, on a household. Now, that as a philosophical uh, point, the idea of having uh, of the property being something that represents you as being a stakeholder in the community, mm. the owner of something material that government legislation or taxpayers' money might actually affect that principle of uh, you being granted the franchise because you had a household rather than the sort of a priori kind of principle of you simply having the franchise because you exist, because you are a human being. That is, of course, the direction that franchise reform started taking afterwards. But this looks to contemporaries as though it is the final version of that process. And while it's true that there are some advocates of, like, for example, manhood suffrage who are interested in shifting the property basis to an a priori basis, it looks as though Britain is set for um, uh, you know uh, for, for 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 this system without necessarily further reforms being kind of mandated by sort of logical necessity, as was the case arguably in 1832 and definitely in 1867. But one of the things that also, of course, important apart from these loftier ideals is who this brought in. Now there were two major groups of um, of men who were brought in in the counties by uh, the Third Reform Act. And um, the first of these were, I suppose, what you might call um, uh, working class people in relatively organised or sort of industrialised kind of places, um, factory workers, miners, um, etc. And um, this meant that there was, I suppose, some organised labour included within the constitution. That's right. I mean, in the, in the first episode, when we were dwelling on the Second Reform Act, we were both of us keen to make this distinction between the, uh, the the urban working class and the rural working class. And that broadly correlates to the sort of geographical distinction between boroughs and counties. But that, but, but that um, distinction, or the, you know, the, the sort of confluence of those two different types of distinction is not perfect, that um, there, there happen to be, due to simple accidents of geography, um, a considerable number of industrial workers or workers who are sort of politically uh, uh, mobilized in a sort of a, um, you know, in a sort of uh, 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 labor activist sort of way, um, who happen to reside in the countryside or in places demarcated as counties. Yeah. So if you're in a, in a, in a colliery town or if you work in, you know, certain kinds of textile mills in the West Riding of Yorkshire, for instance, you would be just as likely to be in a county seat as a borough seat and therefore excluded from the provisions of the 1867 Act. Mm. And so that sort of asymmetry is perhaps from the Liberal Party's point of view, what provided the real fuel you know, uh, in terms of political momentum to go after uh, further franchise reform. But despite the political significance of these um, sort of politically active uh, industrial workers, in numerical terms at least, by far the greatest beneficiaries of the Third Reform Act were farm labourers, agricultural workers. Um, and it may seem a, a, a sort of a, a rather unfamiliar uh, distinction, uh, you know, to the 21st century British mind, but to the Victorian mind, there was a world of difference between a worker in a city and a worker in the countryside. Um, the, uh, perhaps in, in, in high culture and high society in late Victorian Britain, uh, the, the, the dirtiest defender of the much maligned agricultural worker, the much maligned so-called Hodge, was none other than Thomas Hardy who dedicated his literary labours to eulogising and painting as lovingly and in as detailed a way as possible the richness of the te and the textured nature of the lives of these people, particularly in his beloved Dorset. Um, and as well as writing novels about them, he also wrote essays. This one written uh, in 1884 as the, the Third Reform Bill was going through Parliament. He wrote an essay that was reprinted in Longman's journal, uh, called The Dorset Farm Labourer, about the uh, so-called Hodge, which was the common kind of derog derogatory nickname for farm workers at this time. And this is what he said about how they're perceived. When we arrive at the farm labouring community, we find it to be seriously personified by the pitiable picture known as Hodge. Not only so, but the community is assumed to be a uniform collection of concrete Hodges.
The supposed real but highly conventional Hodge is a degraded being of uncouth manner and aspect, stolid, understanding, and snail-like movement. His speech is such a chaotic corruption of regular language that few persons of progressive aims consider it worthwhile to inquire what views of any, of life, of nature, or of society, are conveyed in these utterances. Hodge hangs his head or looks or looks sheepish when spoken to, and thinks London a place paved with gold. Misery and fever lurk in his cottage, while, to paraphrase the words of a recent writer on the labouring classes, in his future there are only the workhouse and the grave. He hardly dares to think at all. He has few thoughts of joy and little hope of rest. His life slopes into a darkness not quieted by hope. And these were the men who, it was proposed, would be given the franchise. And I've got a few, I've got a quote of my own from a, um, uh, a candidate um, uh, who was considering the prospect um, of the enfranchisement of the agricultural labourers. Um, a candidate for Ipswich, not obviously fighting in an agricultural seat, but nonetheless, who regarded it to be absurd, the notion that a man who drives a muck cart or follows a plough who does not know the distinction between a Whig and a Tory, and who can neither read, write, nor spell word, should be given a vote. There was also a guidebook um, printed before the 1885 election, uh, which warned prospective uh, campaigners, um, especially those coming from um, the town to campaign in the countryside, that with agriculturalists, the process of mental digestion is frequently slow. So the notion that from all of the lofty debate that there had been in 1866 and 1867 about the worthiness of the working class, the upper working class, mm. the seven pound, the six pound to wield the franchise. Now we've got within less than 20 years to a situation where the, if we are taking contemporary opinions on this at face value, of course, men who were very uneducated, very, very rustic, not necessarily stupid, of course, but for whom following imperial affairs, you know, following the workings of, you know, some of the key political issues like land reform, for example, um, like free education, like Irish home rule in times to come, that these were the people who were now in many agricultural divisions actually in the majority mm. of the population, which transformed uh, agricultural districts like in East Anglia, for example, to being places which were previously dominated by tenant farmers and then were increasingly dominated mm. by agricultural labourers. And one of the major effects of this was that there was... Um, a really strong uh, re-looking at the political situation by some political some candidates in the countryside, and a lot of them actually chose to retire um, mm. prior to the 1885 election, starting rather than fight this new election mm -hmm. with Hodge as the master of politics. Indeed. So we find uh, as sort of something that actuates even further, that drives uh, those should we say, old political hands, those political veterans of the of an older type of House of Commons, e you know, even more readily towards the exit door, um, is not only the transformation of the franchise, but the transformation of the constituencies themselves. Indeed. And I think on that note, we should probably get a brandy before continuing. <sighs> that hit the spot, I have to say. Anyway, um, so the third of these three major reforms is the 1885 Redistribution of Seats Act, an act with a very plain name, but with very considerable consequences. It, uh, it was very, very uh, consequential indeed. It um, introduced uh, an aspect of the British electoral system that uh, we've had ever since um, and uh, take to be, you know, a, a more or less... Uh, uh, an utterly ordinary, maybe even indispensable part of our elections, which is to say constituencies which were firstly um, represented by one member of parliament as opposed to two or three. There were a, f a handful of single member constituencies in the older parliaments, but uh, they were very much an anomaly. 
Um, but now they are very thoroughly the norm. There are maybe a couple of dozen double member boroughs or something in the country, and that's it. The rest are um, single member constituencies. The constituencies, moreover, created in 1885, not only have one MP each, but um, in the, the the regulation set by the by the 1885 Act, are roughly speaking, by no means with arithmetical perfection, but still are, roughly speaking, um, of equal size. That is, for the first time enunciated in law, the expectation and the principle that a constituency, any given constituency, will have roughly the same num- the same population each. Yeah, exactly. And one of the um, major uh, manifestations, um, if you like, of you know the equalisation of constituency sizes was really the um, end of what you might call small boroughs. Now, while it's true that a lot of them had been disenfranchised in 1832, like the really notorious ones, like um, you know, like like Old Sarum, for example, yeah. and you know the Dunning on the Wald constituency and Blackadder, not that that really existed, but that sort of seat was gone. There were some, like the borough of Cowan. For example, mm-hmm. uh, ironically, Robert Lowe's um, a constituency, one of the famous opponents of um, uh, of democracy from 1866-67, that had um, an electorate that was sufficiently small to be in the hundreds, uh, so that Robert Lowe himself personally knew the electors in the constituency. And when you have the equalisation of constituency sizes combined with the fact that you've got, obviously, a major enfranchisement, you are now, there are, as far as I'm aware, very, very few constituencies that have uh, less than 1,500 voters. Mm. And so... As a consequence, it's impossible uh, for MPs to know um, all of those uh, voters themselves personally. And this effectively means that those kind of um, uh, uh, almost the ability to purchase those kind of seats by bribing all those voters, even though I appreciate that bribery was made more difficult simply by dint of the sheer size of these constituencies, because they have duly been equalised, becomes much, much more difficult. And politicians of all kinds, even those who really didn't have, shall we say, uh, a very high opinion of Hodge or the urban working class, had to go around stumping on the campaign trail and had to get their hands dirty actually in elections that no longer could even small boroughs be effectively the nurseries of statesmen. Um, and I mean, indeed, in, in so so uh, uh, with the demise of those sorts of patronage structures, or dare I say, deference structures or deference networks, um, you have, and in the absence of big money, you know, being able to completely bulldoze a constituency with the provisions of the 1883 Act we've just discussed, um, the, 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 the primary weapon that the that the candidate now has in a constituency of thousands um, is the spoken word, or the spoken word as as spoken to a crowd, or as printed on a piece of paper, and uh, uh, that's why the uh, political age inaugurated by the eighteen eighty five election is uh, uh, the the political age of verbosity, the age of words, and it's uh, a very good job that someone has finally written a book that casts the period uh, in that light. Um, and I think he's done a very good job as well. Yes, I think uh, he's done an excellent <laughs> job, as, uh, job as well. And um, uh, one can uh, purchase his book for the um, uh, the mere sum of £50 um, uh, from uh, Boyd de Lambrua. Um, but a- another consequence of redistribution is that you have this equalisation on the one hand, but you also have it that constituencies like, for example, Norfolk Northwest or Southwest Wiltshire are appearing, which are the artefacts of the mathematicians of sophology, the boundary count people, those um, you know, civil servants who are employed to go around and decide where constituency boundaries should be, how many electors should reside in this seat, how many electors should reside in another seat, and those um, cephalogical, mathematically conceived arithmetic units being the elected basis of members of parliament. Now, of course, in the past, boroughs were granted the ability to send MPs to Parliament by Royal Charter. Hence, you could have enormous boroughs or tiny boroughs with that privilege. Counties also automatically had that um, privilege as well, again, regardless of the size of the counties. And so, hence, you now have the basis of democratic power being decided by constituencies as population sacks rather than actually by historic units, uh, sorry, historical communities. Now, that might be a rather an academic distinction, but I think it's still nonetheless an important one. Um, And the final 
point, I think, about redistribution, which mm-hmm. is relevant here, is the beginning of what we might call villatorism. Now, this is uh, a, his, a historian's argument, something that a lot of histo- a lot of historians have written about, people like J.P. Cornford, um, uh, for example, um, have written about how it was the case that um, because individual constituencies uh, appeared in, say, suburban areas that weren't just simply part of a borough or part of the surrounding counties, uh, that this created uh, particular kinds of uh, characteristics, especially social characteristics, mm. of individual constituencies. Like, for example, in these suburban areas, you know, which often had um, a lot of money in them, uh, that this enabled, according to the villatory argument, uh, the Conservatives to build up a very, very strong uh, sort of electoral um, electoral bastion in these suburban um, places, which wasn't really there before. Precisely. So precisely because the basis of political representation has sort of been individualised in the sense that um, an MP is an MP by virtue not of representing a borough you know, in the seat of a, of a royal charter or a county that has existed for uh, since time out of mind, um, but, uh, he's there to represent, you know, 30,000 voters or whatever it might be from this particular segment of a, of a borough. And therefore, the distinct social characteristics of that corner of a, of a borough or of that slice of a county can be, as it were, disaggregated from the rest of that borough or county, um, uh, to the point where the member of parliament is functionally there as a representative of, let's say, a predominantly middle-class suburban part of a large city or as, you know, or of a predominantly working-class part of a city or as a part of a county with a high degree of non-conformity or, or w- whatever it is. So you really have the makings for a much more, shall we say, ideologically polarised kind of political representation. I quite agree. And Consider, though, ladies and gentlemen, what it must have seemed like after the enactment of these three reforms. Those old cultures of corrupt electioneering made almost unworkable by the Corrupted Illegal Practices Act. The opening up of the franchise to these simple men of the countryside by dint of the Third Reform Act and the uh, complete remapping of the cephalogical map of the United Kingdom with these arithmetically equal constituencies. It's no surprise then that given this transformed system that the election that was then to be fought after it would feature something new. And that's what we're going to talk about in the next section. So, ladies and gentlemen, I've taken off my jacket and for a very good reason because we're going to start talking about Joseph Chamberlain and the unauthorised programme, which is the new content which appears on this remade stage of politics after the 1883-5 reforms. So, Joseph Chamberlain, as we have already met him in the introduction, is this ex-screw manufacturer, the Mayor of Birmingham, this really titanic force of municipal politics who has transformed the Birmingham Municipal Corporation um, through, for example, um, getting the council to run things like the supply of gas, the supply of electricity, and to be able to make profits on them, to reinvest into those utilities, so-called municipal socialism, has also been responsible for masterminding the development of the National Liberal Federation, the party machine, which you can hear all about in the previous episode of 1880. That even though um, Chamberlain is, you know, a politician of relatively minor note officially, you know, just being the local government secretary and uh, one of the Birmingham MPs, he is developing a burgeoning reputation as being one of the new men of politics. And when he sees the reforms that have been enacted in 1883 to 1885, he floats something called the unauthorised programme before the country in a series of speeches preceding the election, where we'll talk about some of the proposals that are in the unauthorised programme, but taken together, he describes the unauthorised proposals and the socialism that some opponents accused him of peddling thus. We have to grapple with the mass of misery and destitution in our midst. It is a problem which some men 
would put aside by references to the eternal laws of supply and demand, to the necessity of freedom of contract, and to the sanctity of every private right of property. But, gentlemen, these are the convenient cant of selfish wealth. I shall be told tomorrow that this is socialism. I have learned not to be afraid of words that are flung in my face instead of argument. Of course it is socialism. The poor law is socialism. The Education Act is socialism. The greater part of municipal work is socialism. And every kindly act of legislation by which the community has sought to discharge its responsibilities and its obligations to the poor is socialism. But it is none the worse for that. Our object is the elevation of the poor, of the masses of the people, a levelling up of them, by which we shall do something to remove the excessive inequality in social life, which is now one of the greatest dangers, as well as a great injury to the state. So, pretty hot red words coming from the mouth here of Joseph Chamberlain. But one of the things that is really inspiring him, as well as these commitments to what he's calling socialism, even though he's not calling himself a socialist, is the hatred of the Whigs. This, that's right. So um, the, uh, the opponents who he is so bitterly excoriating in that quotation you've just read out are not so much you know, the people in the opposing party, but people within his party with whom he not only shares a party, not only shares one half of the House of Commons, but shares uh, the cabinet table with um, while Gladstone was in office uh, between 1880 and 1885. Um, and this kind of ideological uh, schism running through the Liberal Party, it's something that we've hinted at in previous episodes, but it's uh, quite palpably coming to a head in the mid-1880s. Um, that's uh, partly because of, you know, one of the, one of the uh, reforms that we discussed just a few minutes ago, uh, namely the establishment of predominantly single-member constituencies throughout you know, almost the entire country. Because what the abolition of double-member constituencies does is that it deprives the Liberal Party of a possible safety valve or a possible kind of way out, a means of compromise, uh, uh, a way, you know, of, of brokering a compromise between the two halves of the party at the local constituency level. Because, of course, if each party is going to put up two candidates for the two seats available, they can have one Whig and one Radical, and that, will, that can, you know, at least for a time, paper over the cracks within the party. But once the uh, the double member seats are almost entirely gone, then each constituency is only going to get one liberal candidate, and then that's when you know that's when the you know the clash in the localities in the in the boroughs in particular is really going to come to a head. Yeah, and because Chamberlain's um, men, his the so-called new men who have captured all these local associations or established them, I should say, rather maybe in some cases captured them, are now the predominant organisational force in many of these boroughs. And uh, so Chamberlain is saying anyway, allowed the Liberals to do so well in 1880. If there is only a Whig or a, or, or a Radical that can be chosen, Chamberlain feels in a very strong position to insist that the Liberal candidate should be a Radical. And so this is one of the ways in which Joseph Chamberlain feels as though the stage is set for new content. And that's one of the things that he's probably the most interested in, rather ironically, than the actual enfranchisement of the agricultural labourers, who Joseph Chamberlain, being a man of the city, knows actually almost nothing about. But this is then the unauthorised programme, this series of proposals which Joseph Chamberlain is making. Now, I would just talk about a couple of those things. Um, probably the most important or the most one of the most striking is land reform. Now, land reform and who owns it and who owns the land and who gets to till it, who gets to farm it is um, you know, really sort of a perennial um, item of uh, controversy in British political life. And in particular, the agricultural labourers now, of course, um, enfranchised. The fact that these men own no land of their own, that they are not able to grow vegetables, to be self-supporting, that they effectively have only their labour for sale, is something that 
um, many liberals, or some liberals, certainly some agricultural reformers, like, for example, Joseph Arch, for example, uh, Jesse Collings, want to do something about. And the purpose of land reform is to give the municipal um, authority and almost all of Joseph Chamberlain's thinking, despite being so almost so socialistic, is through the sort of municipal mm-hmm. instruments. Um, that he wants to empower the municipal um, uh, corporations and the county government to be able to buy up land from estates at a minimum price, which is uh, specified by them. And this, of course, um, uh, really disgusts um, uh, the aristocrats who obviously don't want to have their land compulsorily purchased at probably a very, very low rate. And um, the point is, is to give Hodge an allotment on which he can grow crops and become more self-sufficient. Precisely. So we are seeing, you know, in, in some ways, some radical discontinuities with not only you know, the mainstream of British politics in the preceding years, but also what liberalism stands for. Does it stand for the enhancement of individual liberty? Uh, uh, or does it stand for uh, uh, attacks on established privilege? The Gladstonian vision of the Liberal Party um, seeks to, you know, conflate those two things as far as possible. It's based on a vision of politics um, that, that, you know, as far as possible, uh, uh, presents those things as being basically synonymous. But of course, there are some pretty serious economic and ideological tensions there, um, which someone like Joseph Chamberlain is more than ready to absolutely hammer at and, you know, far from paper over, fully expose and go hammer and tongs for, you know, trying to remake the Liberal Party in his image. Yeah, and I think another... Um, sort of important aspect of that and maybe one of the ways in which uh, the local authorities presumably through grants uh, would be given the financial um, instruments to be able to buy up some of these estates even if at an artificially low price uh, would be through the raising of taxation and Joseph Chamberlain has a very advanced opinion in where he thinks taxation should come from Uh, he thinks that taxation should come from wealth and from land now, of course, you know, Gladstone had been uh, advocating some things a little bit like this, as we saw in the general election of 1874, although nowhere near as pointed. But Joseph Chamberlain really um, almost saying in as many words um, uh, that um, he was demanding a ransom on private property, even using that term ransom, which was again, of course, a term that uh, alarmed the Whigs, that for the legit, for private property to be safeguarded, uh, to be legitimized by law, that those who owned it, that those who owned these great estates should pay a rather a larger down payment um, uh, to keep um, to be allowed to keep it. And so that also representing something that really upsets. Um, uh, the Whigs and the Conservatives. That's right. So we're, we're seeing um, what, with hindsight, uh, in the light of developments, which we shall discuss in later episodes, uh, may, uh, may, may seem like the premonitions of great ruptures and instabilities that will uh, uh, turn British politics upside down in the years and even decades to come. In the early 1880s, we already see the Liberal Party beginning to kind of creak at the seams um, as uh, Whigs and radicals find it progressively harder to, uh, 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 to, to agree upon a common vision of what liberalism is all about. Yes, indeed. And of course, this is a, you know, where, where, when one might, may write some of the sort of the epitaph uh, of liberalism ultimately as being a, a, a political force which of course became extinct in party terms in any case in the 20th century this might be the beginning of this I suppose what you might call the kind of conflict between you know, the old liberalism of the aristocracy and the new liberalism of uh, wanting to adapt to socialism um, at the beginnings of it arguably you could see in the unauthorised programme a couple of other um, parts of it that I think are quite striking and Perhaps it's sensible to look at both of these together, which is, uh, first of all, um, free education uh, or the provision by the state of uh, school fees um, uh, so children can be educated. Obviously, there's a, you know, in some respects, there's a strong kind of Gladstonian element to that because it's about education, it's about learning, etc. But I think one of the things that really motivates Joseph Chamberlain here is actually nonconformity which is that even after Gladstone's famous Education Act of 1870, even though a lot of school, schools, board schools have been built, many of them are Anglican and the nonconformists are still having to pay for them. Obviously, taking off 
that um, uh, obligation to pay um, uh, makes it um, uh, somewhat uh, somewhat less of a bitter pill to swallow. Um, but the other reform uh, that is there is the disestablishment of the Church of England. In the first episode of Heavy History, we talked about the disestablishment of the Church of England in Ireland. Joseph Chamberlain is proposing nothing less than the disestablishment of the Church of England throughout the whole of the United Kingdom, something that still, of course, has not happened today. And just how radical does that look? Well, it's, it's radical not merely in in a sort of theological sense or in, a, or in an ethical sense of undermining um, to what you know still in the eighty even in the eighteen eighties is to many conservatives part of the essence of what um, of what the state is of what uh, uh, the crown is you know of of what the nation is, but it's also in rather more materialistic terms a radical. Um, economic policy or radical land distribution policy because of course the Church of England not only has whatever spiritual authority it has by being the established church it also is a very very large landowner uh, a landowner in a, you know, in a collective sense and so um, uh, if the Church of England is to be deprived of its um, sort of sanctified official established status then then presumably all of those land holdings that it gets through centuries of being the established church are up for grabs. Exactly, hence the principle then of disendowment. But noting the, the extreme spiciness of these um, uh, proposals in the very inflammatory language that Joseph Chamberlain uses, Joseph Chamberlain is, um, like many of his peers in the age, you know, a terrific orator, a terrific platform orator, <coughs> Um, a, a fire and brimstone orator as well, very much that, who can fire up audiences with this kind of rhetoric, that he, with his programme, putting this programme before the nation, and as we'll come on to look at when we discuss the results of this election, seeming to get quite some purchase from it as well, albeit not in places he expected, looks as though he is in the position to, we might term this as, capture the Liberal Party that he's a politician who has hardly worked his way up through the parliamentary party, through you know, serving in various junior cabinet positions to become a potential candidate for prime minister, that he has been only relatively recently elected MP for Birmingham and was mayor of Birmingham, and now he looks as though he is actually genuinely a viable candidate for prime minister. But he has done this through announcing this programme, which is unauthorised, unofficial, unsanctioned, repudiated by the Liberal leadership, and through having the National Liberal Federation in his pocket. And this Mr Saleh might be the most sort of extreme instance in British politics of where someone with a power base that doesn't come from you know, any party or even any, I suppose, sort of an understood kind of grouping of power or influence within a party has a chance of actually making it his own. That's quite true. I mean, in much, much later on, and it was the end of the 20th century, and more recently still had arguments periodically within the Labour Party about, you know, to what extent uh, uh, is uh, legitimacy within, you know, the internal dynamics of the party conferred by eminence in the parliamentary party as opposed to um, uh, a, a mandate, you know, uh, bequeathed by... Uh, delegates at a party conference or, you know, the party membership in a, in a ballot. Um, uh, the career, or at least the, the kind of the, the first part of the career of Joseph Chamberlain, uh, is, a, is a reminder that those sorts of questions and tensions within the parliamentary system are not quite as novel as we may usually think they are. Yeah, exactly. And this gives, of course, uh, Chamberlain this kind of claim. And after the election, there are, of course, a lot of arguments about whether the unauthorised programme was influential, what parts mm. of it were influential, how far the NLF uh, mattered, as it did in 1880. And so there's quite a lot of working out that needs to be done by contemporaries about what the result of this election, with its completely uh, remade rules of engagement, actually represents. Ladies and gentlemen, all that excitement was really just about as much as I could handle, and so I had to ask the butler to pour me a glass of port, and I've already drunk half of it. 
But anyway, um, let's have a look at the result of the 1885 election. And we have here British Electoral Facts, 1832 to 1980 by F.W.S. Craig once more. And we find that the results of the election were as follows. The Conservatives, with 2 million votes, up 600,000 on 1880, winning 249 MPs. The Liberals, with 2.2 million votes, up just 350,000 on the last election, winning 319 MPs. The Nationalists, the Pinellites with 86, and 16 other various uh, crofters and lib labs who we can effectively count as Liberals. Both Liberals and their allies and non-liberals, both having 335 seats each. So on paper, a dead heat. Although I think we should note that because the Parnellites were not exactly minded to be voting en bloc in favour of the Tories, that the government looks as though it's going to be able to govern despite not actually officially having a majority. That's right. So not So although... The, a very superficial reading of the headline results that you just read out suggests, you know, some incremental change in the balance of power in the House of Commons compared to the 1880 election. If you look at, it, you know, with more care at the results, particularly at the results as they're happening in different ways across the country, you're seeing very radical changes indeed. Thanks to the introduction of single-member constituencies across almost the entirety of the country, we can talk in a bit more of a, should we say, a modern sense, uh, but, you know, about the national picture or the regional picture as to where party strength or ideological strength is in favour of one party or another in different parts of the country. And so, in 1885, it's the beginning of a new era of um, electoral politics, um, some, but by no means all of the features of that election are things with which um, we will be familiar with, which will persist throughout much of the rest of the period, right up to the Great War. So, for example, established in 1885 is the fact that uh, the most reliable bastions of liberal strength are, and will remain for quite some time, to be uh, what is, of course, often called the Celtic Fringe. So Wales, particularly rural and small-town Wales, bastions of, of nonconformity. You have much of Scotland, uh, excepting the slight anomaly of the, of the Highland Crofters we mentioned just earlier on, uh, and almost all of urban Scotland solidly in the Liberal camp. Uh, looking at England, you have uh, a regional picture which is, in some respects, familiar to us, in uh, in the early 21st century, in other respects, not so familiar. So the Conservatives do very badly in the northeast of England. They do very badly in much of Yorkshire, particularly industrial uh, West Riding Yorkshire. Um, they don't do very well in parts of rural England where we now expect them to do well, so particularly those parts of rural England where the Anglican Church is not very strong, so the West Country, parts of East Anglia, uh, conversely, they are very strong where they have always been, in the home counties. They are becoming stronger in uh, the London County Council area, what would become the London County Council area. Um, they are absolutely swept aside in the Birmingham conurbation um, by the force of Chamberlain's National Liberal Federation campaigning. Um, and Lancashire, uh, so often called the, sort of the cockpit of the country, uh, the, the melting pot of electoral trends in the country. Uh, Merseyside, strong for the Conservatives with a very distinct electoral microclimate. But, but the rest of Lancashire, particularly cotton Lancashire and coal mining Lancashire, much more inclined towards the Liberal Party. A masterful description of the uh, cephology of that, of those times. But one thing that of course happens in, in 1885, especially, is the Liberals doing incredibly well in county constituencies where the agricultural labourers have been enfranchised and actually really quite badly in many boroughs, especially small-town boroughs, especially boroughs that actually kept their second member, such that, bizarrely, Joseph Chamberlain, who aimed his radical programme, the unauthorised programme, at the boroughs, feels a repudiation, feels a defeat, feels actually quite depressed about the election result. And the irony of this, I think, is, is that he should not have been, because he did not realise that the unauthorised programme had been front and centre of the platform of the speaking campaigns 
in rural constituencies where the Liberals had unexpectedly done incredibly well with um, many carpetbaggers, men sent from London, actually um, ending the careers of well-respected Tory aristocrats who had been familiar faces of of politics in those uh, rural areas for many decades. And so um, Chamberlain actually thus ends up with perhaps a different support base to the one that he thought that he would get. But as a consequence, doesn't really claim that he and his unauthorised programme have carried the election. And so as a consequence, doesn't really seize upon the momentum that he might arguably have had. But I think that we can say with some degree of certainty that regardless of that, The 1885 Parliament, with around 230 Chamberlainite MPs, according to some estimates, in it, had tremendous radical potential and looked as though it would potentially enact reforms to do with legitimacy of wealth or property, the condition of the poor. That had been the greatest fear of um, aristocrats like Lord Salisbury and the hope of radicals like Joseph Chamberlain. That is what it looked as though the future of British politics would be in 1885. But then something happened. And that, dear viewer, will be the subject for the next episode.